everybody. Welcome to the Base Brotherhood. You're joined by Alexander the Great, a.k.a. Lead Pacer, our production guru, Lasad Corday, and today our honored guest is Untapped Growth in the house, baby. What's up, man? How's it going, buddy? Hey, thanks for joining us. You know, we've been messaging back and forth, and you know, I want to do things a little bit differently today in our format. Normally, I'll ask some, you know, probing questions, get to know a little bit more about you and your background, but chances are if somebody's watching this, they know you know, a little bit to a good deal about you. And there are some things that you need to get off your chest and talk about. And so this show, the direction today belongs to you. And where do we want to go with this? And we're just going to have fun and go in any which direction. But, you know, I think one of the things you were, you know, talking to me about just a minute ago was mindset and how people need to be thinking. So I'm going to just open it up to you and, and let you start riffing for us. Beautiful. Okay. So I'll give a little brief intro first. So yeah, I'm on tap growth on Twitter. Name's Joel. Um, my story of what I've known for in the space started with regenerative agriculture, low input grazing with cows, thesis being secure food supplies as the world gets chaotic. Um, all civilizations start in the dirt, right? If you look through the cycles of empires, most empires, when they start stealing fertility from their soil, that's when they're at the end of their life cycle. They're starting to use that to finance like a imperialistic warrior class, a lazy merchant class and hedonism and all sorts of different things in their society that unhealthy societies do, right? So usually when you go through a collapse of civilization and a reemergence on the other side, you have shepherds who both figuratively and metaphorically and uh, actually literally mm -hmm. um, are the ones that are a part of protecting what's necessary for society to emerge on the other end strongly. Um, a lot of times mm -hmm. in history, these were monasteries, right? You like the Iona monks who really like protected a lot of the information that make us like society today. Um, like Thomas Cahill wrote a book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, where they protected a lot of the ancient philosophies, histories, mathematics, and sciences by copywriting it. When Europe fell into the dark ages, they like went over to an island off the coast of Ireland nobody wanted and just protected it all until things came back to a little bit of sta stable state. And like the Benedictine monks did the same thing, which is where a lot of the agriculture ethos with me comes from, with me feeling like this is my mission, where they were protecting stuff just like the Iona monks did, but they also sequestered seed banks and tools and knowledge about large-scale agriculture. And mm. so after everything kind of collapsed and everything kind of became more of a tribalism-type world, they would send out monks in two-by-twos, found little monasteries, and they would build communities around food supplies. Because until there's overproduction of food, there's no economic division of labor because everybody just has to be subsistence farmers, right? So you lay that over what we know where our world's at today. Like, um, it's like a global version of Weimar Germany, right? Where you have <laughs> this post-war society that's just trying to financialize everything to hold on. And during that time, due to the currency collapse, every part of productive society was essentially speculative attacked. You just couldn't be an efficient producer because everything was so unstable and the measuring stick of everything was so broken. Everybody was just unable to execute making real decisions except for the farmers. So the farmers back then were still not totally industrialized. They can produce pretty well with minimal inputs. And you read the stories back then and everybody thought the farmers were robbing from them because they couldn't accept, they wouldn't accept paper currency that was being devalued. They would only accept real things. So they were accumulating all the wealth because they were the only people still mm -hmm. producing during the collapse, right? But what always happens is you have 
in communist like systems like this, where like our nation is today, like the globe is too, with this whole roll up into the global system, you usually have famine because you have stupid mistakes getting made just to people thinking they can arrogantly erect this tower of Babel and just rule the world like a machine. And then when that happens, you have confiscations of people on the ground who actually still have value in their hands happen. So you had this happen at a bunch of different times in society where you had these mistakes get made, farmers end up having food, whether you're talking Cuba or um, I think some of the other easy examples in history come out of Russia. And then everybody ends up going hungry because they take away the private property of the farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you lay that over where we are today as the part of society you and I care about as like true America, right? Mm-hmm. We've been stripped of everything. I mean, so I would argue that America since the 1970s has had what I would term as Dutch disease. Are you familiar with the term Dutch disease? No, what is it? Okay, so they, whatever, Holland, right? Dutch is Holland. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, uh, they discovered oil. And when they did, what the government decided to do is share the profit from this um, nationalized oil production with all the people of the nation. And it created this little interesting economic case study where sharing that profit actually stagnated the manufacturing base of the entire country. It made the people lazy because they didn't have to be productive, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So we in the States with 1971 going to the US dollar being the reserve currency of the world, right? We essentially discovered that we could export dollars as a natural resource, just like they discovered oil. Mm-hmm. And what it did is it stripped us of our manufacturing base. So now we've shipped off all our capacity to the rest of the world because we were able to use this dollar and the way we could export it and everybody keeping their value in it as a way for us to maintain wealth, quote unquote, money without having to be productive. And we developed this massive financialized economy, right? So we have that. We have Mm -hmm. a breaking of our manufacturing base of America, which used to be one of our sovereign strengths as a nation. Okay. We have, like I was talking about earlier, destruction of the food supply. Um, that's an interesting one. There's a, uh, kind of the, what I was talking about earlier about the soil. There's a book written by David Montgomery called dirt, um, the erosion of civilizations. Mm-hmm. He goes through the life cycle of empires everywhere from like the Aztecs to the Romans and talks about what they do with their fertility in the soil and how cultures collapse when they stop investing in it. And we as a nation stopped doing that a while back, back when, um, was it, was it Earl Butts who said, go big or go home when it came to industrial farming in like 1972. Mm -hmm. Funny, everything goes back to the same time period, right? Um, So we made everything be huge scaled. We industrialized it and we started pumping petroleum products out using fertilizers, which was actually coming out of uh, trying to convert our post-wartime bomb factories into staying online and productive and just pumping that into the soil rather into bombing Europe, right? (laughs) Um, And so we had already stripped most of the fertility from our soil at that point, but we were able to whip along further just kind of faking value using fertilizers to do it. So we're at a place in our nation where we don't have much soil left. Most of our fields for a large majority of our crops in the Midwest, if you don't have fertilizers on them, they're just not going to grow. So we don't have a main fa- manufacturing base. Our food supply is unstable um, due to being so dependent on fertilizer inputs currently. You layer that on to some of the global stuff going on, like um, – China has actually been working through the Belt and Road Initiative to control a lot of the world's phosphate resources through the yeah. phosphate mines. Russia is not exporting ammonia anymore. China very strategically has um, been really getting a hold of the resources of animal feed inputs that we use in America. 
so things like um, amino acids, um, vitamins, micro minerals, stuff like that we use in our inputs. So we have this situation where there's this hidden war going on over the food supply and America's behind on that too. Um, this is probably part of what's going on in the positioning with Ukraine. Ukraine's like one of the breadbaskets of Europe, right? Yes. Um, there's also some positioning going on in Canada related to all this as well. So we got that. Weaken manufacturing base, weaken food, food security in America. So you can see our sovereignty as a nation is being eroded step by step by step. Then you got the infiltration of our, economic, or of our um, education systems, which has been infiltrated by this whole liberal agenda that destroyed so many things that made America who it was. This nation of frontiersmen and farmers and tradesmen and craftsmen that could bootstrap and actually make the world better, right? Strong families, strong kids, personal responsibility, like go off into the wild and make it into Eden. I mean, that was a part of the ethos of who we were, and that's just gone. Nuclear family units gone. Our Christian morals and ethos was gone. There's just, it's been broken out of our culture. Yeah. So no manufacturing or destroyed manufacturing class, exploring most of the capacity to China. That was also a speculative attack using currency wars that forced us into that situation too, where we got outplayed. Breakdown of the education system, destroyed the younger generation, breakdown of the morals. The church has kind of been destroyed from a way as what it was originally was as well. You got the collapse of the food security. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you got you talk about where our government's at, which I believe our government's just completely co-opted, right? Yeah. So it leaves us in the situation of what do we do today? So that's where my first step thought was this idea of like these monasteries. We have tried to in our country, as people who care about freedom in real America, to kind of stand up for our freedoms again, stand up for what we believe in. I mean, we, we're the silent majority, but we're really not that silent. The problem is we just keep getting outplayed. It's like we are in a game that's more advanced than what we realize. And every time we try to do something, it gets spun on us and we just get flanked. And so a lot of us have just given up to where it's like, we don't know what we should be doing. Everybody's a fed and just like, let's just give up and it's just going to happen to us. And it's just going to be what it's going to be. Right. And that's wrong. I mean, like the, the only thing that keeps goodness and freedom in the world is when good men stop evil. You can't just mm -hmm. capitulate to it. Right. You got something you wanted to jump in there? No, you were making me think about it. Just a complacency, you know, all throughout the Western world. One of my good friends lives in Switzerland, you know, outside of Zurich. And I remember, you know, he was telling me about how, you know, you see all these golden dome mosques that are popping up in Switzerland. And I think they've tried to stop that a little bit. But, you know, just the Islamification is Europe. It's something that actually hasn't been talked about as much recently. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but it was for a few years there. It was really you know, a, a hot discussion point and how rapidly this was happening throughout Western Europe. And yeah. I remember talking to him and saying, hey, you know, and I've been to Switzerland and I've been to an old monastery and church and what it's some of the most beautiful architecture and art where you really do feel, you know, you're in the presence of God and you feel that it's amazing. But the problem is there's only a few people in the church and they're like older people, like where yeah. it, it's just empty. And you're thinking, where is this going to be? And you know, 50, 100 years from now. And I remember, you know, I posed that question to him. And I said, well, what's going to happen to Switzerland? And his whole thing was, well, who cares? I mean, like, I mean, basically, it was settled science in that, yes, you know, these are exhausted civil civilizations. And there's somebody else that that is is reproducing that has a, a willfulness to inhabit that area and exert their will. 
and that it was just kind of a foregone conclusion. And I thought, man, that is very, very sad. And, you know, who knows what's, you know, what's going to happen with them. But I think there's a similar complacency here. But there's also a lot of people that they need to be educated. And I think the thing where you're coming from is, you know, you provide so much great content and education. I mean, you're really just like an open spigot of information. And I learned so much from you the last, <laughs> dude, the last, you know, I don't know if it's been like a year or two, but I have learned so much from you. And, but I just think about how you probably feel like you're in a race against time because you're like, guys, we have to do something right now. We don't have 20 years to get all this together. It's now. We're and crossing so, the event horizon. Yeah. And, and so you're trying it's to educate now, people, but late. yeah. So how do you feel about that? What is that? this journey been like for you in terms of trying to get people to wake up and realize, Hey, we can do something, but we've got to do it right now. Yeah. There's times it feels like screaming into the void and at times it feels like <laughs> shining your light. And then the few other rare ones finding you and the brothers starting to assemble. It's yeah. kind of like the extremes of both light and darkness and it's adventure and it's beauty, it's power and it's terror because of seeing how close to the edge you're dancing Right. But um, it's the way. My, my sage told me back years ago, I was kind of feeling the calling of what I was supposed to be doing and just didn't know how I was going to, how I was ever going to get there. No money, no allies. Mm -hmm. And he kept telling me to be focused on one thing. He's like, you need to be ready as a man so that when the time comes, you can handle the pressure of what it's going to take. Absolutely. You need to be able to see the world clearly, which it comes through seeing it through the eyes of the heart, right? And he made me focus just over and over and over. It took me back to being ready as a man that's integrated, mind, soul, heart, body, right? Mm -hmm. So he just over and over was like, you need to do the hard work of growing into your authentic self. Like um, he always would say, how do you know you're being your true self? Well, when you're accomplishing huge things with really little, really little effort. And it's like this nature of when you do that quiet work to integrate as a man, or as I would term as like a son of God, to grow into what you're really made to be, you're able to shine your light in a way you couldn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's how you find each other. It's this authenticity that can't be fabricated. And that's the one thing that lets us cut through all the noise and find the others that are that way too, right? I mean, that's kind of where you're at with this base brotherhood. Like where are the other ones that are living the truth, speaking the truth, integrating their truth in their beings and trying to do something about it, right? It's, um, it's a work that's done at a place where nobody knows about it. That's, that's the hard part because it's like it takes that faith of knowing that like when the king's ready, the sword appears, right? You're wading out into the unknown. You don't know what it's mm -hmm. going to be, how it's going to be accomplished. There's all this huge risk because you're doing it in a world that's so opposed to truth and it's just chaotic darkness everywhere. Mm -hmm. But like we believe we're not alone and that when we step out into this, when we become our true selves that are integrating to truth and being obedient to something larger than us, that we'll have the support of not just the truth itself, but the other brothers that are there that we haven't found yet, right? And it's been a beautiful story of that. I mean, I spent years doing that with pretty much nobody around. And the last year has been when I really started finding the brothers and starting to pull together a bunch of us to start working together, which has been incredibly powerful. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been yeah. a lot of the above. No, it's interesting in terms of the timing of it, because I was kind of going through the wilderness. I had a startup that I did for close to a decade. 
and it was just a continual struggle. I mean, it was like pushing a rope at times and, you know, you can't do that. I mean, but it was just start. It was fits and starts. It was, you know, you'd build yep. some momentum and something would happen. And then, you know, COVID hit and I realized like this is just the end of the road and this is not what you need to be doing. God has another plan for you. I, I don't know what I didn't know what it was at the time, but you needed to be willing to, you know, close this book and, and, and end this and move on to something else. And then, you know, we, um, you know, I, I guess I would say for me, it was probably around the 2020 election is whenever um, everything that happened that night on November 3rd. And then in the subsequent weeks leading up to January 20th, I think it was for me a realization that, wow, like this is not the country that I, you know, that I thought that I was raised in. It's not the country I thought it was. Not only, I mean, culturally had it changed so much. Yeah. And really, you know, I remember, you know, growing up in the 80s and early 90s and, you know, having a great Christian culture in rural America and small towns. And it was just so, and it's so different now, you know, for younger people. I'm thankful to have been raised in that time, but I just thought, you know, this is not the place that this is not familiar to me. I don't know this the way that I thought I did. And I don't know what, there's something about, I get, I don't know if it was Twitter, but I just started connecting with people in this, you know, Twitter world and the digital world. And a lot of my historical friends started to kind of die on the vine, wither. We didn't keep up with each other as much. And COVID had a lot to do with that, but there was the the COVID divide, and then there was the, you know, the political divide, and all of it, you know, really coalesced and came together. And I probably found you around this time, and saw, you know, some of the things you were doing. And I was like, this guy is, he's just, there's nobody else talking like this, and is actually doing something about it. And it was truly like, you know, a pioneering spirit, you're a maverick. And as I've seen you, you know, continue to work on this project, but also, you know, talk about Bitcoin and, you know, being a sovereign person and all the different things we can do in preparing for what's coming. It's really been a blessing for me in my life. And I know it's been that way for many others as well. So that's kind of happened over the last year or so is whenever, and I don't really know why. I think it, maybe it had something to do with Trump where people realized, hey, there's no one person that's going to save us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. Exactly. And that's what used to make America so strong, right? A nation of frontiersmen, farmers, and craftsmen. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the World Wars, we, like like one of the stories um, in, um, man, I forget who wrote that book. The same guy who wrote um, that one that got made into a movie, um, Band of Brothers. Um, okay. He talked about how they yeah. ran into all the hedgerows with the units of tanks, right? And they got bogged down. But they were all farm boys. So, like, the military in the U.S. used to be really, really, like, regimented during training. They were very orderly, very, like, process-oriented, kind of bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. But they were very flexible and loose when they hit the field because what they were training for was for having guys that were kind of independent, take the initiative, self-start, and problem solvers, right? And so these units were over there, and they hit this problem. And every unit had some farm boys in it who either welded up or wired up or coming up, came up with a solution to attach things to their vehicles and tanks to be able to solve the hedgerow problem. And then when they started linking up units, they would iterate between each other and take the best of each other's ideas. And now the whole army was back on the move again, right? It was that. It sounds like a startup, really. Yeah, it's like an entrepreneurial spirit, but it's also just raw masculine grit and fortitude of having yeah. that heart of like a king, right? Where it's like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to solve the problem and create order. I'm a frontiersman where I'm going to rule the wild, right? So my my 
my thesis is that for us to have any fighting chance, we have to first focus on becoming that as men, which is that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. But we also need to build systems that are like that again, where we have vertically integrated ability to opt out as local communities, right? That's not the only solution, but it's a necessary part of the solution, right? Where we have the ability like Americans used to have in the states with their local power and local manufacturing and local food production to be able to say no to the larger like global roll-ups that are happening because we don't need their permission, right? They can't force us into some central bank digital currency with this UBI incentive because we just don't care about their money. We have the real goods that we need, right? Because we're making them ourselves. So we need to be building these kind of sovereign communities that have locally resilient supply chains from food to manufacturing to everything all the way up, right? And then we have the unique advantages of America, which like the federal system where the power is actually granted locally, especially not just with the state, but the local sheriffs and things, right? Um, like I often go back to the story of January 20th with the um, firearm rally that happened in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Do you know any of that story? No, tell us. Okay, so we had Governor Northam get elected. He Virginia is like a microcosm of the whole country, right? where we have a couple strong population centers, the Richmond, Northern Virginia, and Tidewater, that are all very blue and liberal. But the whole state besides that is rural, kind of strongly farming, and very Republican and red. So Nova around Virginia, I mean, who even knows how much these numbers are even real, right? I mean, I've heard some of these counties have more voters on the uh, voter rolls than they actually have registered living citizens in the counties. <laughs> but um, uh. put that in a different bucket. Um, (laughs) so he gets elected, he starts pushing this assault weapon ban and red flag laws and all this bullshit. And America's still, I mean, Virginia's still got enough of this deep South attitude that we're very strong firearm lovers from most of Virginia. And everybody was pushing back. And every time they pushed back, he would escalate kind of like what you're seeing with the trucker rally. Now it was Mm -hmm. like, he was just stoking it to the point where like, he was actually considering taking the pensions away from local sheriffs where it was connected to state money. And like, it, it was bad. I mean, the, it escalated all the way to the point where I don't remember where it started, but a, one of the counties or two of the counties got together with a local county legislator and passed a Second Amendment sanctuary law where they said if Virginia passes an assault weapons ban, that we're not going to enforce this, enforce this in our county. And the local sheriff supported it all. A lot of the counties even said that if they pass it, they're just going to deputize the whole county. So this swept Virginia. We had like a hundred plus counties pass this. And like wow. it was like I, I actually went to one of the rallies and where I was at was in Yorktown, Virginia at the time. So on the battlefields where our nation's freedom was originally won in the historic courthouse, we're standing there in the rain talking about this. <laughs> it was the most <laughs> epic thing, man. It was the whole yeah. feel and vibe there was mind blowing. Yeah. But um so that all swept the whole state. The majority of all the counties in the whole state pushed this thing. They were going to be Second Amendment sanctuary counties. And he escalated again. He pushed some bullshit about, like, red flag laws and, like, going after actually charging the people who were pushing some of this stuff as far as the resistance protesting. And there was a lot of tension. So we had a Second Amendment rally in Richmond where there was – I think 70 or 80,000 of us ended up coming out there. Wow. The media underestimated it because I, I was there. So I like, we tried to get us some good counts. Pretty much the entire crowd was armed carrying ARs. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> um, most peaceful day you could have ever imagined. It was really yeah. great vibes. 
the whole city actually got left cleaner than it, we were when we got there to start with. Everybody brought trash bags. We all tipped all the local businesses really well. Like the, it, we knew it was a narrative war too, right? Right. But he wanted to escalate it and do something, but he couldn't because with all the groups there, the local sheriffs and the local legislators were with us. That's how America is designed to function, right? Mm-hmm. Because they can't push it against the people when you have the support of the American system as it's designed to function, right? But the key was we'd done the legwork locally first. That way, when he wanted to escalate, there's no there was no handles on it. There was just nothing he could jerk around because it was all just done well. Um, so if you integrate that back to what I believe we need to be doing and what I'm trying to build, I'm working with trying to construct local communities that have that resilience to support freedom in the local zone so that we can get to a position where we have the ability to be self-reliant and the freedom to say no to things. Mm-hmm. That and we build strong networks with real freedom-loving Americans that understand what it's really like raising strong families and why that matters and have that being featured in a way that like the trucker rallies, now you see in the media trying to frame them that you just really can't because it's just too true and authentic, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So that's kind of my thesis of what we need to be doing. I mean, if you look at the the right side of America right now, you have most of them just out there grifting. You have all these and influencers. And it drives me out. nuts. I can't oh, stand bad. it. It's real bad. And oh. politics isn't going to solve these problems. We need to secure sovereignty again, just like we originally did with being frontiersmen and farmers of Americans that were self-starters, right? Get the ethos ethos back of strong fathers leading strong families where your home's your kingdom first. And then from that place of strength, have the power to actually do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of my biggest gripes with the whole Canadian trucker rally right now, where they're trying to choke off the enemy's supply lines, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they share the supply lines with their enemies. What they're in is they're in a war over the hearts and minds of the population of Canada. Like a, a protest like that, you're trying to demonstrate two things, the size of your support base to make it seem like there's no incentive to come after you and your willingness to stay the course, right? And with them shutting down the supply lines to the country, my worry is that when people start going hungry because the truckers aren't hauling food to them, how much is the hearts of the people going to stay with them? Because mm-hmm. if that's what you're fighting for, is it really going to work? Yeah, We have to be thinking larger scale of how do we get back to having ability to opt out through having control of vertically integrated sovereignty, right? So that starts first here, which rolls into what I wanted to talk to you about mindset, right? Mm-hmm. My, um, my sage has always said this in this way, is that a worldview is what you believe about reality, but don't even realize it's directing your decisions. It's the frame through which you look, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm realizing, working on what I'm working on, is that we got worldview problems. <laughs> Big time. Like, it's like the Jews. The Jews, when they came out of Egypt, they still thought like slaves. They just had saw God go to war against Egypt with Moses to just obliterate them, cross the Red Sea, drowned all of Egypt's army in the ocean. They get to the desert, and they're like, Who's going to save us and feed us? Give us yeah, a king. Give what? us a king. Like, <laughs> here's a golden calf who led us out from Egypt. It's like, 
Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, what, well, we're hungry now. Let us go back to Egypt. Slavery was better than this. It's like yeah. they, they'd they spent, what was it, 400 years being slaves, and it was stuck in their heads to have the posture of a slave, not the posture of a sovereign, of a king, of a true man tribe leader who's going to read their family off into the promised land where they, uh, they had their own kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing we think inside of boxes strongly. Do, are you, are you, you're probably got so many thoughts about what I'm already leaning into. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I've, I've had some realizations too, really over the last week or so. There's a couple of things I want to talk about that you said, and we'll come back to this. We'll just kind of run around a little bit and try to remember where we were when we left off. But I was thinking about how, you know, there is a lot of grifting on the right because I think a lot of people don't really understand what true conservatism is. I don't think I think they've they've lost track of it. They 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 just don't are they weren't they're younger and they're not connected to it and they don't really understand. And so we have these people that come over from the left and they're like, hey, this woke stuff is actually kind of nuts. And it's like, guys, we've known this forever. I mean, I remember in the car growing up listening to Rush Limbaugh and he would say, My mother loved Rush, loved Rush, mm-hmm. and she loved Newt Gingrich, and she was like a a woman, you know, she was a godly woman, but she was temperamentally conservative, like just temperamentally. It was not just ideological, but temperament. Like she saw the, that was just how she operated. And I just think about that was ingrained in me. And so when I, you know, you have these Johnny come lately's from the left and then they come over and they say, you know, and it could be, you know, you know, Bill Maher will say something occasionally that's somewhat reasonable, but there's a lot of people that I think have kind of been politically, they you know, they're former leftists and they get pushed to the front of the line. And these are people that may have voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 or every other, you know, Democratic president. And they just realize the ridiculousness of this. And my whole thing is, guys, we're so happy you're here. It's great. But at the same time, are you really the thought leaders? Are you really the people that are going to do what is necessary to take us where we have to go to survive? And my belief is no, mm-hmm. for most of them, very few are able, are going to be able to do that, Right. And so that's that's one thing, you know, why the right continually gets kind of infiltrated by these by these imposters or people that are, you know, not really, you know, historically, you know, right wingers. But I also think about just, you know, having the conversations that need to take place on the right. You know, again, something that's been memory hold is how many great people that have been, you know, banned and deplatformed from social media over the last few years. I mean, they are, you know, Donald Trump is gone. He has to issue press releases. And then other people retweet it or put it on his Telegram feed. And he's got to go try to do his own social media network with Trusa. And so you think about Milo and Gavin and all these guys that were irreverent provocateurs Mm -hmm. that really understood what Trump was about. But then they were systematically, you know, just kind of emasculated and and, and just completely deplatformed. And then we have this new group that's come in of... You know, you know, like the people at the Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro and, you know, there's just a new group of people that are kind of seen as not, you know, they're not as milquetoast as Fox News, but they're they're like, that's the heartbeat of conservatism. And I don't buy into it for one second, because if you're not willing to put it all out there and, you know, be deplatformed to say the truth, then, you know, I mean, I, I say that and you and I need to stay on like we need to be careful. We need to be savvy. We need to be clever. But um, these guys, I just don't think are, you know, really what we're looking for. And but if you do want to speak the truth, you're looking at a Twitter ban and you're looking at and the, the alternatives 
just aren't uh, satisfactory. You know, they're really mm -hmm. echo chambers and you're speaking to people that already know the same things you do. And so, you know, how are you really going to bring new people in and, and, and spread the message? And so anyway, that's a couple of things that I just wanted to riff about. And I just think we want to get out the word as best we possibly can and do it on YouTube and send people to Rumble and try to stay on Twitter. And we have our Telegram chat group and we want to build up the website and post our videos and build something that's, you know, that's long term sustainable. But, um, you know, it's a real fight, isn't it, to get the word out and avoid mm -hmm. those booby traps that well, happen to genuine. I've been shadow banned for a while on Twitter. You what? I get no, I've been shadow banned for a while on Twitter. I get no penetration. You, yeah, you do. Yeah. It's like a lot of my buddies that are actually some of the guys that, like, we've been talking and, like, really developing some of this just ethos together with out of, like, this culture that's kind of emergent. These guys can't even find me through their normal Twitter client anymore. It's like they have to log in through an alt, download the link to the tweet, and then take it back to the original account just to like my stuff or use alternative Twitter clients. Like it's it's gotten really nuanced in the way that the shadow bans and things work with the censorship. It's um, like my uh, my retweets, if I don't put any quote tweets or stuff on them, they'll go pretty far, just get normal engagement. But yeah. there's definitely some buzzword bans and things too, because if I say things, some tweets that are just my own stuff, like nothing. It's like crickets. Nobody sees them whatsoever. It's right. the weirdest thing, but we're, we're, this goes back to the whole thing of sovereignty, right? We're currently operating on controlled channels of communication. Correct. So it's like, we keep picking fights without controlling the terrain. That's really the problem. You just, you can't. I mean, if you look at, um, like guerrilla warfare of why an, like a outnumbered opponent usually has this huge competitive advantage and like, you think like Vietnam or even the Middle East, mm -hmm. it's because in a guerrilla war, the smaller guy is always able to control when and where the fight happens. They pick the terrain. Mm, mm -hmm. We're not doing that. We're always having, we're operating on somebody else's terrain and it just doesn't work. So like for me, I, I've never really been very political. I don't pay attention to a lot of the guys out there. I mean, no, I was kind of smart. happy with what some of the stuff Trump was doing. Mm -hmm. um, like I was, I liked how he was trying to reshore American manufacturing, which is something that was really good. But at the end of the day, I mean, when push came to shove, he just, he wasn't savvy enough to really protect what happened. I mean, you think he really understood what was going on whenever, you know, we were talking, we think about with COVID and then 15 days to slow the spread and then the lockdowns. I don't know. Do you think, I, I just wonder, did he, because he's a guy that I think likes to kind of defer, you know, to his you know, subordinates his and have them, you know, they're yeah. the subject matter experts. They can you know, Fauci and, and, and Deborah Burks, they can go do that. And I just wonder what was the point where he realized that he had lost control over the situation? I think he did, but um, I don't know. There's just so many errors that he made, you know, really from the COVID time through all the way through whenever he left office. Yeah. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking in a sense to me. I mean, it wasn't like I looked at the guy as he was going to be our you know, he was the second coming of our Lord and Savior. I never thought that for a second, but <laughs> some but people sure did. I well, I know because you know those are people that it's it's kind of funny because I remember supporting him. Um, you know, I liked him in 2011 when he gave a great speech at CPAC. I remember telling people that I really like what this guy's doing before he ever ran. And what's happened now is now I'm kind of like, yeah, this isn't gonna, this isn't the solution. This isn't. I don't know if we need to go do this again. Mm -hmm. And they don't. They too. They get mad at me. Yep. That's like, well, what are you talking about? You know, and so there are unfortunately a lot of people that 
you know, he, whatever he says goes, and it's very hard to be critical about it. But no, go, to go back, I, I just, um, I, I think you make a good point. He did some really good things, you know, with the manufacturing and, and a foreign policy and keeping us out of harm's way and deploying more yeah. soldiers and these pointless conflicts. But at the same time, he really missed some big stuff. And now we have to clean up the mess. Well, he didn't do a good job with his leadership teams and circles. You know about the right. stories where like some of his generals just completely ignored him and did their own thing anyway. Like a real <laughs> leader wouldn't have let that happen. True. Yeah. Um, he didn't have a plan, even though he did anticipate what was going to happen with the elections. He didn't have a team in place. I mean, you see there's a lot of an organic like um, truth finding, fact finding thing that happened on the ground. There was a lot of energy pushing it, but it never went anywhere because there's no leadership of it. I mean, did he just lose heart and just kind of crumple at the end or get co-opted and it was his job just to slow it down to get us to where we are now? I don't I don't really know. I don't even really think it matters. Politics yeah. isn't the solution to where we are. It's but that's just, a new, and that can't be repeated enough is that politics is not the solution because, you know, now, you know, we, we people are talking about DeSantis and Trump and all this stuff. I'm like, guys, I'm just so far beyond this. This is not, it's neither one of these guys are going to get the job done in the way that we need. And in a certain way, it's kind of like, it's a continuation. Like I think about, you know, what you're working on and what people should be focused on. And the longer people are caught up in like saving America with somebody like, like with Trump getting back in the office, in office, and that's where all the energy goes. I'm like, guys, you're just extending the timeline for like what we need to do right now. And that's mm -hmm. something I'm sure you think a lot about. And you're taking steps to do something right now. And so yeah. I want to ask you, like, in terms of timelines, like, you know, kind of let's kind of game it out or just kind of it's hard to be nail anything down specifically. But seeing where things are going, you know, I've seen people some wild, you know, differences and projections in terms of people say that, you know, the American empire is, you know, 50 years away, could be 100 years away. You know, Stanley Drunkenmiller says that within 15 years, the dollar will no longer be the global reserve currency, which to me, that means the empire crumbles along with it. Yep. And then we, you know, I, I have, we have some friends in our, in our group that are like, Hey, 2024 is, is, uh, it's not looking good leading up to that election. So, you know, I know it's hard to be overly specific, but what do you, how do you kind of see things playing out over the, the coming so years? So let me frame that question first. Yeah. We're going through a global roll-up of communism, right? Where they're trying to export essentially China's system of social credit score to the rest of the world, mm -hmm. trying to go through this great reset of the monetary system to push us into using like this vaccine imperialism where they're rolling out and trading that with the SDRs for the other like foreign nations to everybody all into a centralized currency standard of some sort. So, they're using the virus as a cover for being able to get away with all this egregious breaking of the social contracts and covenants of nations. And most of the nation's leaderships of most nations in the world have been scared or co-opted and falling in the line with the agenda. The U.S. is a particular problem for this global agenda. We have a culture of freedom because we're just a rebellious people. We're, our creation story is a creation story of rebellion. We picked a fight with the most powerful nation empire in the world at the time as a bunch of little colonies and won. <laughs> the nation of frontiersmen and farmers and craftsmen, going back to yeah. it all over again. Um, and that's still in our cultural ethos, and that's a really big deal. You mix that with the fact we have a federalist system with local power and an armed population 
we are a stick in the mud to that global communism roll up. Mm -hmm. Our nation in particular is a really big, just burr in the gears for like that whole thing working. So that's why I think they're focusing so hard on crippling our country. Whether you're thinking about the food security stuff we were just talking about or the way that our government itself is being co-opted by those who are just puppets. Mm -hmm. Um, They need to make it so that us as a people can't be who we are. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. So that brings us back to timelines. Where we are, I think they're going to try to accelerate us with whatever the next little psyop thing is probably cyber pandemic maybe some sort of environmentalism bullshit in there too to try to ramp us into this whole vaccine medical digital id thing right Mm -hmm. and then roll that into some sort of ubi with some sort of central bank digital currency tied to some sort of like handouts to create incentives around giving them the control um be a mix of some sort of cyber scare and some sort of environmental scare from everything i've read if you study i mean they wrote and predicted a lot of this stuff like the uh, the globalists and the think tanks like with the wef projecting this all would happen and they tell us what they're doing as part of how they coordinate my anticipation that the peak of the chaos is going to be 2024 to 2025 and then they're going to work to kind of roll it all up into 2030 is when their timeline closes so there isn't much time left. We're really getting pretty close to the edge of the event horizon here where if we want to be able to solve this problem, we need to be working and operating like now within really like the next six months or it's just not going to have time to fix it. Yeah, and, and I think about just how everything seems to be accelerating. And now with COVID, and it's kind of like they have to keep pushing the timeline up because there are so many people that are waking up you know, via the internet and each other word of mouth and think about all the people they've had to deplatform, all the censorship and restrictions and controls they've had to put, and people are still able to access the information. And there's, and so there is a real desire to, um, and more and more people are waking up by the day. I mean, I remember talking with my family, you know, who are big believers in, you know, the medical industry and about the vaccine. And I, Okay, so this is going straight to Rumble now. We're talking about vaccines. I don't know if we can put that on YouTube, but um, you know, telling them like, yeah, there's, you know, guys, how many boosters do you need to take? I mean, this is like a software update. You know, I mean, like you have to download the update and and get the, you know, how many boot. And and so I said, guys, this is about something else. This is about control. And and whenever somebody yep. is invading your body with a needle and putting something in it that you don't really. You're not really sure if that's in your best interest, but you're doing it to go along to get along or because you've been convinced it's the right thing to do. That's got a that's got a damaging effect to society. And I over time, I think they've come around and see what's going on. And you know what you were talking about earlier about how this is all public information. Like we're not spinning conspiracy webs here about things that don't exist. I mean, you can go look at WEF documents. You can go. There's plenty of information and literature out there that people can go reference if they have the inclination to want to go look for it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we know what's coming. And the question is, how many people can we bring into the fold over the next few years before, you know, when we can really mount a battle and beat this damn thing? Mm-hmm. And that that's the question that I can't answer just yet, but it's a challenge, right? It's something that we have to go out there 
and do the absolute best we can to wake as many people up over the next few years. And so, yeah, it's interesting you say like 2024, 2025 are going to be kind of the crescendo maybe in terms of like hot conflict and, and, and psyops and just the craziness. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we come out of it. Either we win or we lose. And if we win, we can, the hard work of doing something begins or we go down a different road, which we certainly don't want to, we do not want to go down that road, right? Nope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thinking about the vaccines, did you see the um, the whistleblower thing that came out of the military recently? Would you, no, you sent me something on it. Would you tell the audience a little bit about what's going on right now? So they had a presentation by some of the brass about what's happening with the troops and their medical conditions post the vaccine mandates being forced on them all. These numbers are insane. Um, the biggest one that's insane is the neurological conditions that's ramped up by a factor of 10x, I think, of what it was before. They have 863,000 cases of neurological conditions and an active duty force of 1.3 million. Holy crap. I was going to say our military can't be more than a couple million people, but it's 1.3 million and they have over 800,000 people. Yep. Anything less than 70% is considered combat ineffective. You know the crazy part? They deleted the myocarditis data. We don't even know. They, they were having the hearing where they were talking about it. Mm-hmm. They just straight up deleted it. Like nobody knew the answers. It's not in database. They just erased it. Right. Uh, you just made me think about like everything's digital now. We don't have a record. And so if someone can just del- hit delete and then memory hold, it's memory hold. I mean, it makes you're making me think just I need to start writing things down more. Like, honestly, like I need to have a pen and pad nearby where I can actually write things down because I'm so living in this world of, you know, screens, you know, of, you know mm-hmm. laptops and phones that, you know, it, it would be pretty good to have a pen and paper by my bed at all times just to write, scribble things down. Do you do yep. anything like that? How do you keep track of every, you got so many different things going on. <laughs> it's all up there. I don't know how it's in there, but it got in there somehow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you, if you look too, it's even more concerning because Russia and China aren't using mRNA vaccines. No, Only the rest is. So are they using like a more traditional vaccine? What better way to take out a nation's army in this hidden warfare, control the inputs to their food supply, force them to second, like trick them into injecting themselves with a vaccine that weakens the young, strong males predominantly with myocarditis and neurological defects or problems, neurological issues. No manufacturing base left in the country anymore. Yeah. All the while the dollar yeah. is having its volatility happen at the end of the life cycle. Yeah. We're at a, yeah. We're at a pretty rough place. Well, it's not going to be a soft landing. Is what, <laughs> what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's going to be a hard push if we're able to come overcome this one. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I want to come back to mindset, and I want to talk yep. about what people can do. You know, not only with mindset but physically preparing mm-hmm. for what's coming. Like you're in good shape. You're a very fit guy. You did a great speech. I haven't met you yet, but I remember seeing you on stage in Miami. You got a ton of energy. You did that great speech, which we actually need to post a link to because everybody should be watching this, guys. It's like you give double the amount of information in the period of time. Like for 45 minutes, you can give an hour and a half worth of content. So we want to help you promote that link, get more people to watch that. But when you take good care of yourself, what can people do mentally and physically to prepare for what's around the corner? Yeah. So... 
first is just take ownership. You have to own that you, you're in charge. We can't just sit around and be the victim, right? That's the, that's the agenda of the mentality that's infiltrated our country is like victims are the heroes. We have to get that out of our ethos. We cannot let that virus get into our minds and hearts as communities or men. We have to be willing to be men who lead, who take responsibility, like Jordan Peterson, clean your room, right? Right. Um, Because everything around us is designed to crush real masculinity. I mean, you think about the toxicity of the food supply with seed oils, fluoride in the water, all the pharma bullshit, like all the estrogen compounds and plastics and everything, right? Like, it's all designed to make it hard to take responsibility that way like it's just doing what's normal makes you weak and soft and it's all designed to take away your masculine impetus to kind of feminize us yeah whether you're thinking of the cultural stuff where any aggression's wrong i mean that's even infiltrated the church the church tries to tell you that christianity is all about just being the nicest guy versus like i want to be like the description c.s lewis gives in chronicle of narnia of aslan right like, is he safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, you know? Yeah. It's a completely different ethos where it's it's aggression and alignment with goodness and truth where we're, we're the sheepdogs, right? So we have to do that with an attitude where we're taking responsibility for everything around us, for our families and communities, to get them away from how every single thing is wired for their destruction. I mean, whether mm-hmm. you're thinking the way the food supply is corrupted, the way the media is corrupted, the way just everything is broken. It's on us to do that first for ourselves, both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, right? And then act as covering to do that for the communities around us. So that goes from everything to like taking care of your diet to like what you're doing in your spiritual life to like working on your mindset and being kind of very Socratic in your lifestyle of living an examined life and pursuing truth and integration and everything you touch. It's, it's a no holds barred mentality of nothing matters, but knowing the truth and applying it that way in a world full of deception and lies, we can be beacons of light that people can shelter beneath. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know there's a lot of young guys that really your message speaks to them. And I want to ask you, so if there's a guy, a young man out there that let's say he's, you know, he's, you know, early to, you know, early to mid twenties and he sees everything that's going on and he realizes, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to have my parents' lifestyle because I see the purchasing power of the dollar just going down the tubes and I've got to, you know, the jobs, you know, if I want to go in corporate America, I may have to get the vaccine. I have to take you know, diversity training, and I've got to do all these things that just completely grate him, you know, down to his core and, and go, you know, he, what kind of advice do you give that guy that's got like energy and a sense of what's right and wrong? And he wants to go make his way in the world. What are the things he can do to improve his situation and get, and get, get going in the right direction? What helped you when you were in that place? Um, you know, that's, that's, well, that's a good way to put it right back on me. Um, you know, get, you know, one of the biggest things that helped me was walking, was, okay. was, was walking outside and, 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 and there's another, there's really two things, walking and praying sometimes done in conjunction, Yep. but I would go on these walks and walk and walk and I, you know, put on the music and 
be outside in nature in a park. And this was whenever I actually had gotten divorced when I was 27. And I haven't shared this, you know, publicly, not that it's a big deal, but I was going through a very difficult time with soul searching. Mm -hmm. And I was just totally vulnerable and found out who's really with me and who's not. But I, I just had so much energy and walking was huge and also praying, like actively praying. Yep. Like, and just, and it was humbling for me. Like, God, I need your help. I can't do this. Cause I was always somebody that thought that I can will my way through anything, you know, no, grit and determination can overcome any obstacle. And if you're not in good with the man upstairs or at least in conversation, like, and, 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 and having dialogue, your results are not going to be great. That's my view. Yeah. You know, the people mm -hmm. that I know that, um, really impact other people in a meaningful way are, you know, godly people that pray regularly and they just have, and, and faith is, it's deep seated, you know, and I say that my mother was like this, my, my, my current wife, who's amazing is like this. And they really just have a faith, you know, rooted in, you know, rooted in their faith, but they have this belief that everything is going to work in their favor. And guess mm -hmm. what? Most of the time it does. It does. So, you know, for me, I, I guess it was a combination of I needed to be active <laughs> and be out and move, but also, you know, spend time with God in private time. Yeah, that, that resonates so hard when it comes to thinking you could solve it with grit. Because I've always been the kind of guy where I could solve it with grit. Yeah. Um, a part of my story is that, um, when was this? This was probably, I don't know, 2016, 17 maybe. Um, so I, I grew up with an autoimmune condition. It was probably Crohn's disease. I didn't pursue it very far in like the typical mainstream health circles to try to really get diagnoses and figure it out. My little brother has Crohn's and usually a sibling's 50, 50 chance to have it too. Okay. Um, I watched what they did to him as far as putting him on immune suppressants and what it did to his health and didn't work. And I just was like, screw this. I'm not, I'm not following that road. Um, so I spent a lot of my life managing it, kind of putting all that attention to diet and stuff, trying to just through alternative type practices, just stay on top of the inflammation and stay healthy and functional. Um, did a pretty good job, but back in like, I think it was 16 or 17, um, I started trying to play with some alternative health protocols to, uh, see if I could actually get better versus just be managing it. Yeah. So I was actually doing heavy metal chelating, trying to see if doing some, uh, work on actual like deep cellular toxicity type stuff could actually wow. get rid of the inflammation to get better. And I always tell people I found the switch, but I turned it the wrong direction. The first week when I played with it, it, it messed me up a little bit. And then I did yeah. it another week. So it was like a week on, week off, week on. At the end of the third week, I was full-blown autistic. I was pretty much a vegetable. Um, couldn't carry conversations for more than like 30 seconds without having days to needed to recover. Like wanted to spin around circles, wanted to bang my head on stuff. Like I felt like I was in a, a ship lost in a storm at sea inside my own mind. Oh my like, gosh. Oh, it was so bad. Like I couldn't even tell where my body was in space. Like my proprioception got screwed up. Like I would Sounds shut like doors almost on like myself. A hallucinogenic type of experience. Yeah, it was bad. Like I was borderline non-functional where I just oh, wow. like, I was barely human. It took me about six months to figure out how to beat that and crawl that hole and like figure out what I did wrong and get it right. And will wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah. And I had to, I kind of learned a a worldview in that where it's like, if you imagine you've got like kind of these bubbles that are all tied together, right? You have like 
your emotional life, you got like your biological and physical health, you got like your spiritual life and your will. Mm-hmm. And so like, or like your financial life too, right? And they're all chained together, right? I had my will cranked all the way up, but it's tied with these rubber bands to all the others and it's just not enough. And I had to learn to figure out which one was behind and move that one to really move on the margins. And early on, it was a lot of it was the biological where I had to figure out like how to chelate the right way to get, instead of stirring up the toxicity and let it get deposited in my central nervous system, I should get all the way out the body, right? But there's these other little funny things that happen in that world when you're that deep into a health hole where toxins in your body actually cause emotional disruptions and certain toxins cause different things to happen to your mind. I mean, some will create like a sense of impending doom. Some will create like irrational, vengeful, like ridiculous anger. Some will create this anxiety where everything's terrifying, you know, like there's just all these different little things. And the funny thing is your emotional state's directly connected to your biological ability to heal. I mean, we already know about the studies with the immune system related to emotional health, right? Where mm-hmm. those who have hope and desire to be alive typically have stronger immune systems. And when you despair, your immune system gets suppressed. But I believe through some of the things I've seen with people who have been through hard health stories that there's also connections between your emotions and just channels for your body's healing systems, whether you're talking the central nervous system, kind of more into like Eastern medical type practices or just like detox pathways or whatever. And so there was times where I'd got everything biologically right. My will's there, but like my emotional life is just cratered because this stuff's mm-hmm. getting in my head. And it's like you had to work on the emotions because until those came up to be in a stable state, the body can't heal, right? Yeah. So it's it's learning where to put the effort versus just grinding yourself away with grit, right? Grit's not enough. And I mean, that's part of the message here, too, for where we're at as a people. Shouting loud in politics isn't enough. We have to solve the real problems. And where do the real problems lie, right? It's something that we all have to think about, you know? And you that was a great visual, by the way, when you were talking about your... No, the different things that are all kind of interconnected. And so yep. maybe this thing is up here and this thing is up here, but there's something else that's dragging you down. That's a really good visual. I think I'm going to, that's going to stick with me and hopefully other people as well and, and how to look about it. So, you know, and, and the thing I, I want to, you know, you know, and I don't know how much more time you have, but I want to let you I got plenty, buddy. Okay, cool. All right. Nothing awesome. Going on tonight. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was thinking about how um, I lost my train of thought. It'll come right back, but just how, Hang tight. This I can roll me- back this- in answer, answer this- your question if you no, want. Yeah, well, let's do that. I, I, I'll get it out real quick. This is really a hopeful message because, you know, there could be some people saying, oh, my gosh, it sounds like you guys are doom-pilled and everything's going to fall apart. And no, it's not. It's, it's a message of reclaiming your individual sovereignty yep. and about empowering yourself and forming a community or tribe with people of like mind. That's yep. one of the most inspiring things I could, you know, possibly think of. And that's what you're going out there and, 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 you know, pushing out into the world. And it's possible. You just have to operate at a high enough level to pull it off. So, so to, to back to the question for me, like, how did I get to where I am? So back in like 2009, 2010 is when I kind of had my wake up call as a man, kind of just get out of being a foolish boy to start really on the journey right <laughs> yeah. and i i plowed pretty hard on it up until about 2010 so i, I graduated high school summer 2009 went to vcu started my freshman year and 
I mean, I was just pounding through learning anywhere I could just consume truth. I mean, reading scripture, ancient philosophers, like I like mentors. I would just like eat mentors alive. I'd ask them every question, <laughs> everything they knew in like 30 days. And I'd be the full extent of what that man could teach me and move to the next one. It <laughs> was brutal. Um, yeah. In 2010, I don't remember when, so it's probably in the middle of the year. I just hit a wall. It's like, go back to the worldview thing. I didn't know the right question. I didn't know the right landscape. And so I just didn't even know what the problem was. And I couldn't identify it. So it's like, I just was stuck. It, will, once again, grit wasn't enough. And so I was in my room praying, like, man, I just need help. Like, I just, like, I don't know what the question is to move the next step forward. And without knowing the question, I just don't even know where to put the effort. And um, that's a whole, bit of a long story, but that's where God sent me my sage. Um, so this is, so when you say, because you, you've referenced this person, I think it's probably three times now. Yep. So you were basically like a, um, an immersive learner that would find a subject matter export or a mentor and you would put them through the ringer, <laughs> ringer over the yep. course of like a month or two, and then you'd move on to something else. And so you went through this for a while, and then you found somebody that was really, um, you know, like the Obi-Wan Kenobi. The, yeah. The, so that, that type of person. I've, I've never asked this man a question that I needed an answer to that he did not know the answer or could point me in the right direction. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um you know, how did you meet this person? And this was about, about 10 years ago. What kind of an impact have they made on your life the last decade? Oh, he's like a dad to me. I wouldn't be who I am without him. The way I met him was literally a miracle. I was praying and I, I won't get too much in this story, but he, we were sent to each other. We'll just put it that way. That's awesome. Um, but um, so to answer the original question, when I first met him, he like grabbed me by my shoulders and shook me and was like, hey, you got to read this book. You know, and people are always giving you bullshit books. <laughs> right. But um, the yeah. book he gave me was a book about like becoming a son of God. So it was written by uh, by John Eldridge, and it breaks down masculinity into six stages. He calls it like the map of the masculine journey. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm looking this up while we're talking. I got to write yep. this down. So the six stages: first is beloved son, second is cowboy, third is warrior, fourth is lover, five is king, six is sage. Mm-hmm. So it's like beloved son's the foundation, right? You got to know who you are. Um, you got to know that like you are like safe in your personal identity to explore the world from a position of like wonder and beauty and like discovery because like that's where your creative ability and your your will reside, right? For your will itself to be safe. Mm-hmm. So it's like that place of knowing you're delighted and loved. And Eldridge talks a lot too about how like our families and fathers were meant to be a bridge to pass us up to God. That way we could step into kind of ascending in this journey to becoming children of God or sons of God where we can take those lessons and extrapolate them up to higher ideals, right? Mm-hmm. So like you, like you think about a beloved son, like a beloved son's just fearless, it's like, you know, your dad's really competent and capable. It's like he runs the town, right? Like you think about like the good old Western town with a, like a dad who's like one of the big cowboys or something, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when you get into fights into trouble, your dad will come out and have your six and I'll set it right, right? <laughs> right. And you know, like he knows what he's doing too. Yeah. So it's like this not having to be the biggest man in the universe so you can settle in because it's, there's a strength larger than you to make you have a place that's yours, right? So you don't have to be alone. 
So that kind of moves into the cowboy. The cowboy is learning competence. It's like the phase of hard work and exploration. You go off into the wilds and see what you're made of and get tested by adventure. And you're out there also just kind of having to put your grit and your shoulder to the plow and see how much you really got inside to uh, really see what you're made of. So that's like where Eldridge talks about there's two things any child needs to know most. You're dearly and truly loved and you must obey. So it's like cowboys, we're mm-hmm. discovering what the rules of reality is. And that's something, once again, that culture is lost from our world, right? We want to just be little egotistical little brats that pretend to be gods that can just break the rules of reality, right? I mean, well, think about, think about, you said you must obey. I mean, I, I remember, um, I guess it was 20 years ago, you know, love, honor, and obey as a marriage vow mm-hmm. was, was changed. You know, because obey became a word that, you know, we don't like that word. We don't want to yep. obey. We don't want to have someone have authority over us. And it became love, honor, and cherish is what I think it ended up becoming. Yep. And so when you think about what you're coming back to, they want to be loved, and, and but they must obey. Yep. That's not, that's not, that's very rare. That's not as prevalent as it should be, right? Yep. And so Eldridge talks about it in the context, like you drop a two by four in your foot and it hurts. Yeah. Because like we disobey reality everywhere. We destroy our soil <laughs> and expect to still get to eat. Or like we destroy our bodies with foolish medical practices and still expect to be healthy or like. Or booze and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. What? I said, or booze and cigarettes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or like we have a hedonistic society and expect yeah. them to still produce children. Like it's just like everything's just fucked. Okay. Yeah. So. Next stage is warrior. Warrior is where you take that strength and you're channeling it to serve a larger purpose. You typically have an awakening of a desire for justice and truth, right? Then you've got lever. So lever is kind of like a very, like King David would be like an ideal of that stage where like he could be this huge warrior with David's mighty men where him and his three boys could stand in one field and fight off armies of hundreds. And mm-hmm. he'd slay Goliath and sit down with his harp and like write songs and poems watching the sunsets, right? <laughs> it's like this... Yeah. Oh, awakening to the fact that truth isn't the only thing that matters goodness and beauty do too Mm -hmm. which is so important because that's what you carry into as a king because when you have responsibility with authority pursuing serving beauty with that strength is how you're able to craft a world beneath you right it's like you can't always apply force just like grit's not enough for us personally to succeed right like as a king you have to have the ability to create unity under with those underneath you and it's more of like a romance it's like you're wooing and pulling hearts together by creating vision and alignment and showing that what they desire matters too and helping them learn to like meet each other's needs well and all that right and the last stage is sage so it's like where you lay down your authority and now younger men take the throne to bear the burden now and you step back and become an advisor where you can tell the truth because you don't really have any dog in the fight you're just there to make sure they succeed so he gave me that book and that book just it blew my mind. And so learning to integrate that into my walk where I was growing into a man that I felt was who God wanted me to be and where I could have a posture where I had those lessons we were supposed to learn from our fathers as boys and go back and fill all the holes of the ones I missed and then extrapolate that up to being a man now where I'm walking with God and trusting him too, right? Like... um. Go ahead. No, I mean, that's, you, you've given me a ton to think about. And I, I think about how, 
you like, I had a great father in, in many ways. Um, in some ways, you know, he had his own personal challenges that kept him from being the father I'm sure he would like to be. And he can admit that now, which I have a lot of respect for him. You know, he's someone that always continually worked on becoming better. But there is a lot, of, you know, even if you have a great father, there's still, it's hard to get everything in one person that you need to in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the leadership qualities that you need to carry on and really actualize your potential as a man. It's mm -hmm. hard to get that all from your father, no matter how great he is. And it sounds like, you know, you've been able to find someone that can do that for you, but also through books. And you've got me really interested now. Like, I'm going to have to go find this book and read it because you're describing, you know, you also think about, you know, the type of leader that we need. Who is that kind of person? You know, like, I, I agree with you. Like, servant leadership is huge and somebody that is... um you know, they have a trust and an authority, but they also can be self-effacing and vulnerable. And again, like servant leadership, they can do all these different things in conjunction with each other. And it's not just one type of person. And yeah. I think it's really, really hard to find people like that. But, you know, it sounds like this book can help, you know, our audience and our viewers become that kind of person themselves, right? It get on the right me. path that and walking with my sage to help me integrate it in real life. Because, yeah. like, this this story of what I'm working on today, I remember, <laughs> speaking of vulnerability, I remember, shoot, I don't even remember how many years ago it was. It was a long time. It was probably almost a decade. I was reading another book by John Eldridge. I, I don't remember which one it was. There's a chapter in it where he's talking about the Monastery of Iona, which we were talking a little bit about earlier. Mm -hmm. And... I finished that chapter and the last line in the chapter is like Aldridge kind of hearing that like, this is going to need to happen again is what he writes. Mm. And when I read that line, I heard a voice saying, and you're going to be the one who needs to be doing it. And so my life has been on this seemingly wandering crazy course that didn't make any sense from the outside of all the things I was working or learning or doing that straight as an arrow shot me to where I am now to be ready for this. <laughs> yeah. And you know what, too, I, I noticed I, this is a common attribute I've noticed in, in good leaders and really good leaders. I bet you spend a lot of time alone, don't you? Mm -hmm. yep. I mean, I, I, I've noticed people that need to be surrounded by others all the time. They need an audience. They need like a constant interplay back and forth. Um, it, it, they, tend, they tend to have a hard time being leaders. They need it because they're pleasers and they need and and. I think you're one of those, you know, we talk on the phone or you'll message me and you're, I can hear your truck or I can hear you're on the road. And so like you're in motion and, you know, you're talking to people this way, but I mean, you spend a lot of time by yourself and I, I it's, it's, you know, same way for me, same for many people I know, like you would think you wouldn't necessarily, some people may not think that like you'd have all these people around you all the time, but no, you're, you're coordinating from afar and talking here, but you spend a lot of time alone and with yep. your thoughts. Well, like they say about a good compromise, a good compromise leaves everybody angry, right? Yeah. Like as a leader, you're typically going to be misunderstood by all the people you love most and you're going to be trying to do what's best for them and none of them are going to get it. And if you're looking for validation, i.e. if you don't know who you are as a beloved son, that is your cornerstone, you're not going to be strong enough to do what it takes because you're not going to have the power to stand in that place where you feel invisible, let down, misunderstood, and still continue the course and not bend or fold, right? And you're going to end up trying to use grit to get there, bring the warrior skills, 
versus the beloved son and lover skills of staying vulnerable and soft around the people that you're trying to actually maintain alignment with, right? Or help them maintain alignment with the story you're leading. So <laughs> I, I heard that, right? And that started a journey for me where we eventually ended up working on writing <laughs> a project roadmap down. I remember sitting in the kitchen with my sage, one of my buddies, that was a real good brother, and um, just me. And I wrote at the top of the board, like build the arc, right? Knowing that like this kind of monastic vision was what I was supposed to be doing. And we ended up using like at the last phase of it, we used Microsoft Project to write down this roadmap and chart the critical path and dependencies of everything. And we kind of prayerfully were like, okay, what needs to happen? And I remember having so many conversations of things that things I probably I won't even leak to you now because they're actually a little bit uh, close to the uh, the center of the mission. But okay. um, things we talked about that were totally impossible. And we we're like, okay, I know this is supposed to be a part of the story, but I have no idea how we're going to arrive here. And we're like, okay, what well, I feel like this is supposed to happen and that's supposed to happen. And I remember we're talking about we need a new economy. This before I discovered Bitcoin. And kind of all these different yeah. parts and pieces and we <laughs> this is so funny so we literally started calling this project roadmap we had these things we just called miracle boxes so it's like i was kind of obediently listening of like what do i need to be working on and i would just kind of sit down be like okay abc okay what's the other things i need to understand that are happening around me okay abc and i would say what anything i need to do be to be preparing for those yes or no and like just wait till i hear an answer as me and my buddies are all kind of writing down the project plan and there were so many things on this project roadmap where we were absolutely impossible. In the whole last decade, the way what I'm building has been working is when I get to one of those impossibilities, Father comes through because <laughs> the miracle yeah. box comes to bear, right? And that's what it means to live when you're not alone. It's like, like I often describe romance this way. Romance is a co-authored story. It's like when you're involved in a really good romance, it feels like destiny, right? It's like this was meant yeah. to be. I was We're made for each other. We're discovering something that's already written. But at the same time, it feels like ultimate freedom. And you don't really quite know where it's going. Because it's like she's telling her part of the story and you're telling yours, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I step back and look at ultimate reality, I think of that the same way. It's like a co-authored story where all of us as brothers are telling lines. God's telling lines. Like. The enemy is telling lines, and mm -hmm. it's this interplay, kind of like that um, like that game you used to play as a kid where you go around the room and all your siblings, and you tell one sentence, and they tell the next sentence, and you never oh, yeah. really know where the story's going to go, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, so like, if you're always going to try to live just exposed only to what you by your own strength can accomplish, you're only ever going to accomplish what one man can do. That applies to building with brothers around you because it takes vulnerability to work together. You're taking risks on each other. You're trusting each other. That applies to collaborating with God. You have to be willing to leave space and invite him to tell his part of the story too as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that map of the masculine journey did for me is it, it set me free to learn how to integrate into being who I am to tell my part. But also to sit back kind of in a receiving posture and a listening posture to leave space for everybody else, including God around me, to tell their parts. That's where a lot of the magic comes from when you have a strong, emergent, fresh culture happening, is having men that are learning to, as a tribe, as a brotherhood, co-author together with the best of their gifts working in unison and unity. 
I think that's huge. And it's like you, you, everybody, everybody needs glue. Like, you know, you're the glue for this. Like you're the guy that keeps it all together, but all of these people with different talents. And I think about, you know, a lot of our mutuals, I see, you know, not to name names. Well, we'd like to have some of them on the show, but I think about their, um, their skills are just like better that they're superior to mine in certain ways. Like some of them can write or like they have an understanding of classical literature or history in a way that I just don't have. And I'm not going to be that good, but God, I love being around it. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to do is, you know, help facilitate those conversations and give those guys a platform and build them up and introduce them to other people of like mine and build that kind of community together. And I don't even know, you know, how all this has happened over the last year. I think about, you know, like it, what we're, it's just amazing that we're here right now having this conversation. It's crazy. If you think about just a couple of years ago, would you have envisioned you'd be in this position at this level, you know, putting all of these different things together, meeting these kinds of people and spread? I mean, I could have never envisioned this, maybe even a year <laughs> ago. And here we are, mm-hmm. right? So, no, I think you're right. Like, you, you need the glue, but you got to let other people flourish and thrive and have the, um, I don't want to say, you know, the ego or lack of ego, whichever it is, to allow for that to manifest and understands it benefits the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a mix of both confidence and the ability to have a servant heart, mm-hmm. which is just like my sage always says it this way. When you know who you are, like as a man, especially as a beloved son, which is a cornerstone, nothing else is ever bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know that God loves you. And that's the biggest thing. And you know, like as a real son, like like a like a boy who has his dad's delight and his dad's confident and capable, and it just like what that really means of you and access to that competency to be able to send into it yourself, right? And so you don't get distracted by other things that seem bigger, powerful, or important. Because it's just there is no ego competition among guys in the tribe. We're just all trying to bring our best gifts to bear. I want him to be his best. That way he can bring the best to the tribe. And he wants me to be my best so I can bring my best to the tribe. And it's like we're just seeing in each other what father sees in us. So it's like we're integrating to a truth larger than ourselves. And in that integration, it creates a unity that doesn't have this adversarial nature to it you see in the circles where you have soft men with ego, right? I agree. And I, you know, being, you know, being in corporate America a few years, you're surrounded by these kinds of people that are like crawling over each other and politicking. And it's just, it's, it's a soul sucking environment. And I think about what we're seeing now, you know, I'm at an age too, to where there's, I get so much joy out of seeing somebody else's personal development, Mm -hmm. seeing somebody else achieve a milestone or have a great idea and go out and pursue it. As much I, I get as much enjoyment and fulfillment out of that than probably anything I do. I mean, seriously. Yep. I mean, like you know, and I've you know, somebody sees a show or they've you know had an interaction with me and like, hey, I remember what you said and I did this. I'm like, wow, like that's cool. There's actually people that are paying attention and listening. And I think I want to go back real quickly to something you said earlier. Is you know, a lot of times the people that know you best, you know, want to cut you down you know, like your historical yep. friends or family, they, well, they've known you for the last, you know, they've known you since you were in diapers. And so they're like, well, this is another one of his ideas and, you know, he'll get tired <laughs> of it. He'll come back to reality or whatever. And 
they like just that, they, uh, they they shortchange like it. It says a a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I remember my dad would tell me. He said, "You know, Alex, the guy that closes the sale is, you know, he walks in from out of town and he's wearing a crisp suit with a briefcase." And, you know, nobody knows who he is, but he looks good and people are more liable to kind of buy that than the person that's a reliable, steady Eddie that's being consistent and really putting yep. the time in. And it's just interesting how human beings work in that way, you know, like, so, you know, you're spreading the message and people are like, this is refreshing. We want to go learn everything about what he's doing and be involved. And, um, you know, other people that, you know, and this is why I personally don't really talk about what I'm doing on like Facebook, you know, just because I don't. No, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just not going to get a whole lot out of it, you know, from, from mm -hmm. a lot of those people because they've known me forever and they're like, eh, you know, so it's better for me to be on these other channels where we can meet new people and, and have these kinds of exchanges. Yep. So, so for then, for me, where the journey went next was I wanted to understand everything I was trusting in and whether it was real or not. Mm -hmm. I used to have a buddy who was a Marine. He would say, he said, my worldview is really simple. I try to shake everything and see if I can break it. And if I don't break it, I know it's true. And <laughs> yeah. We have so many things in our worldviews, whether our religious worldviews as Christians, our political worldviews of what we think about reality of how the world works, or like just as men, family leaders, just everything that are assumptions of things that give us comfort and security that are not based in something that's true. And it feels like opening that up is like ripping the very ground from underneath your feet for a while, because when you mm -hmm. first open it, you don't know what the answer is. It's like, you're just utterly exposed and it takes that courage to have the faith, faith meaning like the vulnerability to wade into that unknown to discover what really is true. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's largely where we are as a people now is we keep getting co-opted because our faith keeps getting used against us. It's you're like the whole right thing, right? Psyops are create fear, promise solution, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. You're going to save us. Right. And over and over and over and over again, I mean, like let's industrialize farming and we're going to save everybody the work and grow more food to save the world. And we're going to use chemicals to do it. And everybody's dying because of gut disease and cancers and autoimmune stuff. Right. Like, right. Or like the whole COVID bullshit or all of it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so really when we get back to what we were talking about, a mindset, that masculine ability to take responsibility and possession first and foremost starts with we have to do the work to know what's true. And we have to do that in everything because if we have blind spots in our own mindsets we're going to be solving the wrong problems with our energy and just getting spun in circles and co-opted. So how do we do that? Right. That was my um, question. How do we do it? Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, see, I, I make this argument all the time. We tend to think that evil is complex and good is really simple, but I actually believe the inverse. Like um, <laughs> I often quote the uh, parts of the Caribbean where Johnny Depp, is like, well, you can always trust a dishonest man to be dishonest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, they're very simple and they're very predictable. It's why people who have these chinks and character flaws are fairly easy to manipulate because you can, you can kind of feed on that little piece. Like if they're greedy, you can pull on the greed. Or if they're fearful, you can pull on the fear. If they're arrogant, you can pull mm -hmm. on that chip on the shoulder. Versus good men, inside of goodness is infinite possibility. Who knows what a good man's going to do? 
there's an entire infinite landscape of possibilities in any given situation. He may offer justice. He may offer mercy. He like he may do this. He may do that. Like with if we step all the way back, like like Jesus said this well when he was uh, going into Israel just before he got crucified. He uh, he said the enemy is coming for me, but he has nothing on me. Mm. So. First and foremost, I would say our ability to see the world clearly is directly correlated to the level of integrity you walk with as a man. The more you compromise because of being scared of something or just not having the balls to face something, which really is what most lacks of integrity are at the root, there's some sort of thing that's just keeping you from facing it, Mm -hmm. is a place that you become blind. So first and foremost, we have to have the balls, have the faith, to pursue knowing the truth and doing the work to integrate it and everything around us. Um, like Dallas Willard says that uh, the whole story of humanity is God trying to entrust men with authority and power and men proving unworthy of it. Mm-hmm. That all starts, starts here. So if we want to do the work to be able to live with power well in the world, we have to first integrate truth into our being of ourselves that way we can see clearly and begin to actually approach the starting line of asking the right questions to maneuver strategically and tactically through complex scenarios. Like know yourself, know your enemy, right? Yeah. And that's where a lot of us are screwing up. I mean, first and foremost, we're like, I, I think that's part of why Jordan Peterson was so popular because he had a very strong focus on like clean your room, focus on like taking care of yourself first. Like you have to create order here before you can have order out there. Um. It's like we're all in an uproar about the world's problems, but it's like we're trying to go out and remove the log out or a chip out of our brother's eye before taking the log out of our own, right? So, I mean, that's the first place to start. So then it's like, okay, we have that. Well, what, do you want to pause there? I mean, that's even like, that's a whole world in itself. I mean, that's a journey that's hard and that people, like a lot of people don't even make it there. Yeah, I know you're, make, you're, you're making me think about... Um... I go back to what you said about Peterson and these very like basic, simple principles, like 12, is it 12 yep. rules for life. And what it's very basic things. When I hear this, I'm like, you know, I get it, but these are like common sense things in the not too yep. distant past. But it's like, you had to have some kind of guy that was like a, you know, kind of a progressive intellectual academic that had to go through his own awakening. And I kind of look at Peterson as a guy that's kind of just going through about his own journey. Yep. And and I and is is he super based? Not to me, not necessarily, but I think he's done a lot of a lot of good things and he continues to evolve as a person at an advanced age and he yep. has helped so many people out. He's absolutely a net positive. And there's so many people out there like my even my dad and I have a brother in Portland that absolutely loves him. And so whenever I'm giving, you know, like my typical give it to him straight, unvarnished, you know, economy of words that may be laced with profanity, you know, <laughs> I mean, just let, get it, get the message out there. Look, that's not going to work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like they need to be kind of like some soft selling and they need someone to kind of help, you know, you know, get them on the right path. And I think he's done that. And of course he's talked about the Bible and, and, and the, you know, and Christian values and rediscovering his own Christianity. So, there's a lot to that, that, um, and I've had these, again, like sometimes on base Twitter where we are, people will be highly critical. 
Yeah. And, and, and I've probably even been from time to time too, because I'm like, Hey, the biggest thing I have with him, sorry to go on this tangent, but is I think <laughs> he probably wanders off talking about things that are outside of his real field of expertise. And, you know, I, I think that it's hard for people to go outside their domain and really start to riff on all these different topics with, with yep. accuracy and precision. And I, I just, I think it's hard to do. And so sometimes I hear him kind of going, wandering off like Dr. Peterson, yep. like, let's stick to the main thing here that, that you're really good at. But yep. um, no, I think he's, it's absolutely. You got to give it to him. He does his best yeah. to be pretty rigorously self-honest. I've seen him own things pretty well. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that. and that goes back to the thing. I, I just feel like this is just a man on a journey. Mm-hmm. I don't know how old he is. I mean, he's mid fifties probably, but I feel like this is just a guy that's kind of going about his life and he's discovering and rediscovering things and he's vulnerable and he's putting it out in the public domain. And I, I think it's great, you know, and I think that, um, you know, someone like Joe Rogan is, is generally great. You know, I mean, we can nitpick or whatever, but these are, these are like good guys, right? I mean, these are like decent human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, trying to do the right thing, and they maybe you know they have their foibles, but um, generally, I like which, I think I think which it's- also create blind spots because they're playing a game they don't understand, which goes back to the integrity gives you clear vision thing, right? Because I mean, Peterson, for example, he is a boomer who trusted state medical care. Mm-hmm. I mean, that took a little while for him to wake up to. Yeah, versus some of us, like we understood the state doesn't have our best interest in heart because we we were willing to face not putting our trust in that for a sense of security. He had to go through a little suffering to wake up to that. That's a good example of what I mean by like your integrity is a determinant of how far you can see. Gosh, what was it? Um, I think it was Ronald Reagan and he was someone might've said it before. He's a character is destiny, mm-hmm. which I mean, we could say that character and integrity are, the same thing or very, very close to it. And that's, that's something that's a hard pill to swallow for some people. Like, am I the right kind of man? Am I really who I think I am? Yep. And I've certainly had that. And, but I just try to remember is, am, am I acting within my character? Like, how do I want to be remembered in 10, mm-hmm. 20, 50, hundred years from now? Is this decision going to align with that man? Maybe I'm not mm-hmm. where I want to be right now, but that guy, can I, can I get, can I, can I do the right thing right now? And so, no, I, I agree with you. And, um, and where do we want to go from here? Yeah. So this <laughs> is, this is where my kind of Christian faith is so integral to the way I see the world. Yeah. So I'll go, I'll go big picture again for a second. Okay. This whole global communism roll up, what they really are is there, it's, it's a war against the hearts and minds of mankind where they're trying to destroy human will. They're trying to create us, as a machine, turn us into machines and roll everything up into an incentive system using some sort of artificial intelligence to map what is best for society. That way, nobody's making decisions except for this black box, which is really just about the elites having all the control. Mm-hmm. Um, versus a real world view of truth is that our ability to choose is what makes us special. That's kind of that slice that the divine in us, right? Like that's, that's the nature of God. It's what makes us different than the animals. Mm-hmm. And so like this, this is my take on even the gospel itself. So like Paul said in the book of Romans, I don't do that, which I do want to do. And I do that, which I don't want to do. Who will save me from this mess that I'm in? Right. Yeah. So when, Adam and Eve took the apple. It was like believing the lie, like the uh, the serpent told him, like, eat this apple and you'll become like God. 
they were children of God. God's whole goal was to make them like God, but they tried to do it themselves, right? Which was neglecting of the truth, like we've been talking about, because they were children that had been created. You can't create yourself. It doesn't work that way. You co-create. Like your dad's teaching you and training you, and you choose what parts of that to take and work with and what parts to leave behind, and you're doing it together. If you walk away from, in this case, God, who is the creator, or if you walk away from your dad who knows better, you end up just getting yourself into situations that you just didn't know better, right? And that's what happened to humanity. I mean, so part of the philosophy of Christianity is that we became slaves to sin. What that really means is that we lost the ability to choose. So we no longer had freedom of self-determination. We would just get stuck in ruts based upon, I mean, whether you're thinking about things that happened like historically in your family or whatever. And it took, it took a huge amount of effort for people to try to be good. It's like you're always kind of tumbling the wrong direction or unable to move towards the things you want to be moving towards. And you never could really like get there, right? Yes. So my take on Christianity is that this was the purpose of Jesus. Because in our world, like we, uh, we as humans, like we're inherently mimetic creatures. We, we tend just to replicate and copy everything around us, right? Yes. And you see this mechanism where it's just always escalating chaos and like quasi-violence of just evil around us because somebody does something to wrong you and then they do something to wrong somebody else more. And it just is always replicating and spiraling up. And like, so Rene Girard talks about this as like the scapegoat mechanism. It's like you need somebody to peg all that frustration on. And then like when they're gone, it's like everything kind of goes back to a stable state again. Mm-hmm. But with Christ, it's more than just a scapegoat. So his death and resurrection, as it's talked about in scripture, the idea there is that it enables us at a spiritual level to be able to have our choice back again, to be free as men. So it's like the places that our will got captured so that we didn't have that grit or impetus or integrated freedom, thinking about that little thing again, like biological, mm-hmm. emotional, spiritual, physical, or yeah. whatever, like where you had parts of yourself that were locked away from you and you just couldn't have control there, that through that journey of God coming to earth, showing us the way to be, and then what he did with his death unlocks spiritual access to us to be able to follow in those footsteps to ascend into true freedom, into being like sons of God, like demigods, like in his image who have that same power and authority over reality that he does. Right. So that'd be my first, like just brief intro. So how do we become integrated people? How do we know ourselves and have blind spots? How do we ascend to having capabilities as men, as leaders? Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of that journey, that journey of being a son, that journey of dealing with getting rid of the things that enslave you to integrate truth into your being. So that that's that's how I'd tie them out on that piece. That's huge, man. You've given me a lot to think about. And I I'm probably gonna go back and watch this a couple of times. Because no, seriously, you you have. And this isn't a conversation we've had yet, but I think it's gonna be huge. You know, really for anybody. Like I think I think it's something where young guys can appreciate this, but like also my parents, because there's not a lot of people that are talking like this right now. Yep. Um and it's, it's, um, it's very, very powerful. It's very powerful. Um, I want to ask you, so, you know, we're, cause you know, we're going to do that. We're going to post the whole long form, but we're also, mm-hmm. we can do some clips. And so this might be a little bit of a non sequitur just so everybody knows, 
but talking a little bit about, um, you know, you've, you've been in the Bitcoin community, you know, mm -hmm. for a while and really gotten to, you know, you've met all different kinds. Like I've seen you doing, you know, interactions with Safe Dean and mm -hmm. he's kind of maybe have an idea as to what you're doing, um, you know, with the Citadels and, and, and with, you know, with cattle and he, he might have a little bit of an inside track. So, um, what has your experience been like in the Bitcoin community? Has it been largely positive? I mean, I, I think you've been around long enough now to see all the different shades of mm -hmm. what's going on in Bitcoin. If you would just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you discovered Bitcoin and, um, you know, where you are today on it, that would be awesome. Yeah. So Bitcoin was one of those miracle boxes. I was kind of working on building small businesses and starting to work with sovereign community stuff. And I was becoming more and more aware of like cash structuring stuff, like civil asset forfeiture mm -hmm. in the ways that they were just working against small businesses with just this totalitarian agenda of craziness. Yeah. And I was awakening to realize we needed sovereign ways to store value and trade among one another. And so I assumed this was just one of the problems I'm going to have to figure out how to solve in our communities we were working on. Right. <laughs> but like any problem, you do a little bit of just due diligence, see anybody else has been working on it. And yeah, uh, yeah somebody had been working on it. <laughs> well, I mean, you think um, about the idea, think about the idea of a decentralized ledger of account. Yep. That's an, that's an insane idea. And to think that that's actually something we can do. And right? it's an integration of value to energy itself, too, through proof of work which is a whole mind-blowing thing there. I mean, you had like Henry Ford, Buck Minister Fuller, and a bunch of other like economists who really understood what was happening say that in the future, money would be measured in jewels. It'd be measured in energy because that's all really like money is. It's, it's, it's stored energy waiting for optionality for the energy to be deployed. Right. So Bitcoin, through having this digital ledger tied to reality thermodynamically to energy through proof of work, it enables you to have this communication tool about value that never existed before that is not skewed by some sort of underlying market or asset, right? right. Like, um, like, like gold doesn't get used for a lot of things it'd be useful for because it's got such a huge monetary premium on it. It's actually more useful to let it sit in a vault rather than make some actual like electronics or something cool out of it. Um, so like I always say that money... Like, so there's, there's three main technologies in history. You've got language, fire, and money. So language is the ability to communicate and express desire with one another, right? Mm -hmm. So it takes it from being like your own will to being our will, where we're working together or in opposition. <laughs> um, fire is like the ability to use and harness energy. So it's your ability to take your will and deploy leverage through tools, capabilities. I mean, anywhere from like burning wood to cook food to nuclear reactors, I'd classify in like technology as fire. Electricity, yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. Okay, then money. Money is the ability to communicate about energy through time and space. So what it does is in a distributed marketplace, money is my ability to tell the market at large, what it is that I want and need. And it tells me back who's the most efficient to spend their energy at accomplishing it. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin finally is a clean measuring stick with no noise because it's not being manipulated by a central bank. It's not got an underlying market that's got like actually industrial use cases. It's just pure monetary premium directly tied to energy itself with 
a completely predictable supply cap that's completely visible for any of us to look at and know that it's real so that it's pure signal, right? So I found this is this Bitcoin. I dug into the game theory like a lot of people do. I went down the rabbit hole for about six months and just kind of just fell in love with it because there's just so many little nooks and crannies in the interdisciplinary (laughs) world that is Bitcoin. There's a lot. And um, yeah, it's just become a pretty integral part of what I'm up to because if you think about where we're at in the global communism roll up, right, there there's a couple main monopolies that are getting used against us. There's like the monopoly of the media, which is used to manufacture consent and deceive the masses, right? You've got the monopoly of violence, which is used as the enforcement arm mm-hmm. for going out like with the policemen or international enforcement or the militaries. You got the monopoly on the regulatory bodies, which create this fake rules that keep them in power. But it's all held together by the monopoly of the money printer. Yes. Because the money printer is how they're able to craft incentives at scale. Like if you look at what they did with the hospitals or even some of the states with the COVID shit, it's mm-hmm. like they were using subsidy money just straight from the government handouts to control behavior. And so that's the one that actually is holding up the other monopolies against anything being able to fracture that. So well said. Yep. So if we want to have an awakening of like a decentralized freedom movement again, it's got to start with the money because that's going to break the glue that holds together the other power structures, which is why Bitcoin is so important. But money is not enough. Money is like a um, money is an option call on meeting your future needs. But it's operating on the assumption that somebody's going to take responsibility to being prepared to meet those needs and be willing to trade with you. And our current world is descending to chaos. That may not always be true. I mean, like I read a story on Twitter from Lynn Alden where she went out to buy a car yesterday. Right. She's great. And, yeah. And she, there just was none to buy. It's like same could easily be true about the food supply in like 18 months. With the lack of fertilizer, nobody's growing corn. They're all growing soy. Everybody's already um, consolidating the number of cattle in their beef herds and actually selling off some animals. So it's like. In a place where you've got an economy that's collapsing like this or in a war footing like we're entering into globally, you can't just hope in the money. Money is not security. Like men create sovereignty through ruling as kings. It's not the wealth itself that does it. The wealth is the creating of it, the actual working and producing. It's um, like Bitcoiners often say infinity divided by 21 million is what Bitcoin's ultimately going to be worth. But if everything in the world is actually zero, like you can't eat Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. So no, and, that, and that's the thing. I mean, with crypto, is it's like you know these people have made so much money. You know, some of them Bitcoin and other things too. And like they're so, but it's like guys, if the rest of the world is in chaos and other people are suffering and they can't eat and hyperinflation has set in and they can't, yep. you know, and and rent is skyrocketing and they can't go buy a decent house. Do you want to live in that world? I mean, maybe you have means and you've got the optionality to go do whatever you want to do. But I mean, if you're, if a, you don't want to live in a world where everybody else is suffering and in this kind of pain. Yep. And, and that's where I think there's some of the crypto community that gets a little bit caught astray. But, you know, it, it, it is a real issue. And you, I, I saw that tweet, Berlin Alden, talking about they can't even forecast you know, what the future deliveries may look like. They have no idea. They can't. And, and, the same and is true for the fertilizer market right now for yeah. farming supplies. It's true mm-hmm. for tons of markets. 
my um one of the companies I own locally is a little carpentry company that does outdoor installation of fences. Oh, cool. We don't even price materials for our jobs. Like we stopped almost a year ago now. We just would give them a quote saying this is what we expect materials to be by the time we get to doing your job. Mm-hmm. We're willing to do a handshake on this is what labor will cost. We'll just eat the risk. We give them a swag of what we expect the lumber market with inflation to be. Cause, I mean, if you, I don't know if you're watching lumber markets at all. Over the last year, it went up like 130 or 140 percent. Then it cratered back down 80 percent. Now it went back up again. Like, you know, what's happening? Just... Give us an update. What's that? Because I've seen, I know a guy in the construction materials distribution business, and so you know he has a good idea of what these you know commodity prices look like. But yep. I, I mean, what's going on with lumber? Where is it right now? Savidian says it really well. He says that when you have a soft money, everything else has to become money to make up for it. So the money's yeah. chasing into hard com- hard commodities because they're actually scarce. So it's trying to protect and hedge against inflation, right? But now what you have is you're trying to chase into a hard commodity that's scarce before everybody else goes into it. That way, when they go into what's scarce, you're there first and you run up with it. And then once it starts running up, you got this human emotion that kicks in and it goes, goes, goes. And then eventually it gets so high, everybody's like, this is is insane. And somebody starts the trigger of thinking it's overvalued, then it just pops, right? Right. You saw this in Weimar, Germany with gold. Gold accrued an incredible amount of value during the hyperinflation of the German, German currency. But during that process, the volatility was extraordinary. I mean, you're talking, it would go up. 150, 200, 300, 400 percent, and it would just crater 80 or 90 percent. It would do this on yeah. like a couple week or month period where it would do it over and over. And even before the final run up of inflation with the hyperinflation, it actually mm-hmm. cratered back to baseline value of what it had been before, like the whole year during that volatility. And then it took off again. Like it was just insanity, right? So, what that human emotion is, because it's a monetary premium. Monetary premium is expecting to be able to trade something as a future value to somebody else because you expect them to want it, right? Right. So rather than that value being kept in the dollar, that value is flowing into all sorts of scared stuff. So like this is one of my concerns with the uh, farmland. Farmland is monetized as a scarce good. But like gold, it's monetized so far that it's actually pricing out the productive use cases because farmers can't afford to actually cover the carry cost on property anymore out of the operations of the farm. So it's actually pricing farmers out of the market, which is why BlackRock and Bill Gates are using the cheap debt and access to the money printer to buy up all the land and consolidate small-scale farms, which once again goes right back in that conversation about food sovereignty of the freedom side of America. That's a national security issue. Because we know Bill Gates is owned. We know BlackRock is connected to the WEF, right? Mm-hmm. So how much control of our sovereign, sovereign food supply do true Americans really even have at this point? So that whole market is just emotion and nobody really knows what it's going to do. Yeah. So the only solution for that is to have a hard money get adopted again, which is Bitcoin, which is why I'm such a proponent of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I remember the Bitcoin conference last year, which I hope you come to. Um, we'd we'd love to have you here in person. But um, you know, being around so many smart young guys, you know, that are just, I mean, they go they have so much depth about Bitcoin. Been around for years and years, and they really say Bitcoin is it. Like Bitcoin is it. All these other things are going to come and go. Yep. And then you think about it, and it's like, well, I mean, like Ethereum looks like it's, it's it's got something, but. Um, 
there's a lot of debate about that right i've had we've got one guy on the show that that's a shit chain and you know he's going off on ethereum he's a hardcore bitcoin bitcoin yeah. proof of work guy i'll drop one teaser on you yeah ethereum was actually touching wef stuff when it was originally founded vitalik was in conversations with the very enemies that are rolling up our country yeah no it's i, I i've there's some shady connections there i think i saw something about Joseph Lubin, who's one of the co-founders with Vitalik, uh, guy, Canadian guy, it's um, a mess. doing something with with uh, Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. Like there's J.P. Jamie Dimon may have a have some Ethereum that he never disclosed or doesn't. While he's trash talking cryptocurrency, he might have been mm-hmm. an Ethereum holder for a long, long time. So there's a lot of tangled webs out in, in crypto land. So, but but with Bitcoin, it's something that is it's robust. It's going to be there, and the network effect is really unparalleled because it's not promising to do all these different things like Ethereum and we're going to do layer twos and we're going to have DeFi protocols. Well, the funny thing is, is it can. There's actually other layers that are working on all that yeah. and doing better than Ethereum by and large. Like stacks, have you heard of that While still maintaining one? your yeah. decentralization principles. Because that's yeah. what makes Bitcoin special is it's open and accessible. Anybody can get a miner and boot up actually acquiring it just using energy and a network connection to the internet. And nobody can change the rules. So it's right. not like Ethereum where they can just rewrite the protocol whenever the hell they feel like. So, well, by the way, it takes them a long time to do anything. What you know? Well, it takes them a long time too. I mean, in terms of Ethereum, what? these things, it's, these timelines for like updates keep getting pushed and pushed and pushed, and then it's been priced in before. I mean, there is something beautiful about Bitcoin just being what it is, and of course, it gets mm-hmm. criticized for that. But I think I, I remember you know someone saying that a lot of these tech type people. They're tinkerers and they want to change this and change that and improve this. Which and do is that. the very problem with Keynesian economics that we already have. <laughs> That's what we're trying to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there, there is a, there's certainly a beauty in Bitcoin in the fact that it is, it, it is what it is like it or not. And um, so listen, I want to, you know, kind of, you know, wrap this up and I want to, first of all, I want you to come back on the show again. Um, whenever you want to download or talk about something, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things happening in the world. And if you get like, Hey man, let's, we want to jump on and let's talk about this. Let's save it for posterity's sake. Like let's get it out there and create that content. And I'm here to just, again, help facilitate a conversation for you. There's so many different things that we could talk about, but, um, you know, beyond just the big things, there's also topical things that are going on today, the week, it could be like, Ukraine and Russia or, you know, what's going on with the truckers in Canada or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, who knows what it is, but we love to have you come here regularly because I think you've, you've got one of the strongest followings out there. I expect the engagement (laughs) for this to be phenomenal and everybody to go watch it. Um, and they'll certainly get something out of it, but you know, what can you kind of leave the audience with in terms of, um, you know, kind of closing thoughts and, you know, what you're working on, where can they find you? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. Before I tie that all the way off, I want to circle right back to where we were in yeah, the conversation. Yeah. So first phase, pursuing truth, no holds barred, understanding the world clearly and integrating yourself to it, right? So having integrity so you have no blind spots. So that's being willing to open everything up in faith of understanding what am I trusting in everywhere and not trusting anything that's false, right? Know yourself, know your enemy. When it comes to seeing the world around you clearly, my, my sage used to always say, you have to be willing to admit how deep the darkness goes. You can't close your eyes to the real depth of what's happening out there and really understand just how evil what we're fighting is, right? 
So that thread is where we were kind of at there when we were leaving it. What I want to tie that off at, shoot, I lost that thought. One second. Dang it, I lost it. That's okay, I it'll come it. back and we can edit this too, but not that we need to because I love these kind of conversations and all the little yeah. things, peaks and valleys. But it's, we're talking about just, um, you know, what people can do when understanding the evil, which I, I mean, I'll go to that. Man, so many people just don't, they're living in a state of denial about how severe things really are. And they're trying to, you know, they, 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 yeah. they you know what I'm talking about? Like they're living yep. in denial and I can't, it's sad to me. It's sad because what's going to happen, the things that you are anticipating, that I'm anticipating, we'll be prepared to handle that. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be so many people whose their, their frame is shattered, their hearts will be broken, and they'll just won't be prepared. They won't know what to do. Yep. Go ahead. You you had something there. Yeah. So yeah. this was the this was the part I wanted to title together with. Yeah. You have to not trust anything that's untrustworthy. And then the other piece of mentality that's kind of the foundation of the next conversation you can I you and I can have is we have to stop asking for permission. Yes. Because that's how we maintain being stuck in this frame where we're just being treated like slaves. Mm -hmm. kings sovereigns men we don't think that way we pursue yes. seeing truth then like like my, my sage always says it this way if our father meaning god is a king and a creator what would he be training his sons to be a king and a creator doesn't yeah. ask he just does right you obey god you adhere to the rules of reality versus trying to treat it like a machine like all these crazy imbeciles ruin our world do but you just go out there and create you make beauty, you rule, you steward it. You make your world better. What man is a man that doesn't make his world a better place, right? So first we have to know ourselves and start integrating that mindset. Don't trust anything untrustworthy. Pursue the truth, integrate it, submit to it relentlessly. Stop asking permission, and then we have to learn our enemy too, to have full knowledge so we can match that on the battlefield and uh, do so in a way that we can actually uh, win our freedoms back. It's going to be, so, it's, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. But that said, we're going to win. I don't think I've ever been more convinced of it. And of course there's days that are tough, but there's a lot of inspiring signs of what we're seeing right now. And, mm -hmm. but I do think this is, um, there's not always peaceable solutions to everything where you can have a rational conversation with another rational actor and you agree upon something and everybody's going to honor the deal. I think we're going into a period of time where there's going to be, there will be casualties. There will be terrible, awful things that happen and a bloodletting of sorts, which we haven't had in a long time. But I do think those days are coming. And if somebody is, is not doing the things that you're saying, they're going to have, again, they're going to have a very hard time. And so yeah. we want to help get the word out to as many people as we possibly can in any forum, channel, you know, social media platform that we possibly can. We want to help get this word out there. Yeah, as our founding fathers said, that this government system they designed is not going to work without a just and moral people, right? Mm -hmm. So when that broke down, you know that everything was going to eventually devolve. And our government and our leaders have forgotten that it's all dictated by the consent of the governed. 
and you can only move against the consent of your people for so long until you as the aggressor make something go wrong. And it's not like we as real Americans are crazy. I mean, you look at what's happening to parents that are protesting critical race theory or some of this hedonism stuff that their kids are getting exposed to in schools or even some of this, like, just mask mandates and stuff that school boards are pushing. And they're framing these parents who just want to know what their kids are being taught and actually be able to steward these little lives they were given. Right. And they're getting charged as domestic terrorists, right? Like, there's there's no place you can go where this global roll-up of communism is not going to come try to take it from you and find it. Wait, so we you have mean to... I, I, I can't go get like a second and third citizenship in the Caribbean or, you know, somewhere. <laughs> I, I, if... I, I rag on these people because I, I like the idea of, you know, running off and, you know, having this place that you, but look, the bottom line is that's not the reality for most people. And it is cowardice in a certain way. Well, um, forget where, that. I mean, yeah. if they can co-opt the whole U.S. government, what do you think is going to happen? Such a strong nation. How how, yeah. how much easier is it going to be to co-opt a third world country? Like, like you got these guys coming in throwing money around, saying that like, well, I'm just going to bribe the local government and create a little safe spot with myself, and I'll hire security guards. It's like, buddy, if all they care about is the money, you're fighting against a global money printer. They have more <laughs> money than you. Like, yeah, this is where trust and honor matter. You need people who have your six because you're unified to a purpose larger than yourselves to do something good together and have each other's back. Money doesn't fix that. Brotherhood fixes that. That's what we need right now, man. It, it, the, the money thing is, you know, we actually just had some um, some friends come visit us. You know, mm-hmm. it's a couple and they're going through a divorce, unfortunately, or it looks like they will. There, there could be a miracle. And they're going to stay together, but it, it, it doesn't look good. And, you know, it, they've, in terms of material acquisition and financial success, this guy's done really well. He's a friend mm-hmm. of mine and he always will be, but, he, you know, he's done really, really well, but he has, he didn't keep his marriage together. You know, he didn't focus on those relationships, like the most important relationship. And now it's all going to change, you know, and his relationships with his kids are going to change and his material situation is going to change. And I just think of, you know, how sad that, but it, it, for me, it was just a reminder of how, you know, people spend 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week slaving away, and then they lose everything that they have in the process. They lose everything. Yep. And that's not a life well lived. And I think there's something about, it's kind of like a boomer thing. A lot of them did that in corporate America and you know, nose to the grindstone and working so climb the corporate ladder, you know, they got divorced, they lost their families. And I think that's part of the reason why the nuclear family is, is struggled today, because so many are children of divorce, and they don't want to go do what their parents did. And they're just scared of repeating that mistake. They're traumatized from their youth, you know, yeah. but just that the pursuit of material acquisition and status has governed this country for a long time in terms of what people have really prioritized. And I think that might be changing with what we're seeing, Um, you know, in this corner of Twitter with people close to us to realize that, you know what, you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have brothers, you don't have kinship, you don't have a good spiritual life, you don't have, um, you know, a support system and network, you're not going to be well equipped for the future that we're going into. Those things are going to be far more important. 
And maybe that's a really good thing, right? Yep. See, this is part of the reason I see Bitcoin the way I do, where they're using inflation, right, to rob from the masses as a method of credit creation. Mm -hmm. So that credit creation is like how they finance their tyranny. We've got this one chance here with Bitcoin where the adoption curve of this safe store of value has a game theory that even the people who want to destroy it because they want the control of the money have to adopt it or they're going to lose out themselves, right? Yeah. So we can write up this adoption curve of Bitcoin and the wealth that creates or really the redistribution of wealth that's creating from the late adopters to the early adopters. It's like the inverse of credit creation, right? to actually build these sovereign local communities and these brotherhoods that are the foundation stones of the free world we dream of. And it's a battle between that world and the world of credit creation and tyranny. It's the decentralized, strong, sovereign family units and then the globalist. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's on one side, funding us through its run-up. Their inflation curve of robbing from the world is on the other side, funding them. They've got control of everything right now, so they've got all the advantages and we're the underdog, but we have truth on our side, which is a big deal. Because, I mean, like the whole joke, like, why can't liberals meme? Because well, well, they're not integrated to truth. <laughs> right. That, that right. itself yeah. is our edge. Because yeah. deceivers are always going to deceive and lies don't hold up. If we can start building communities that have the savvy and discernment of being leaders with integrity that we can pull together and not have these different narrative ops kind of pull us apart and fracture us, that strength starts to accumulate pretty quickly in the right places. So that's why I support Bitcoin. That's why I support building networks of strong brothers and families and why I support building like local, strong, vertically integrated, like small business type communities and farm communities. I think it's great too because it's not it's not any one thing. It's a combination of things that are working together in concert. And I think there's some people that think that there's one thing. There's the magic bullet that's going to make everything come together. It's one person. It's Bitcoin. It's this or that. And yep. the truth is, it's all of these things. It's a lot of hard work. Um, it's a real commitment, you know, over a short and long period of time to live this way. And I think one of the things too is, you know, this is a lifestyle. This isn't something that um, you know, you're doing just because it's just, you know, the ends justify the means and it's a sensible thing. Like it's a lifestyle too. You really enjoy it. Like you enjoy mm-hmm. being in the country, you enjoy the camaraderie with the guys and it's, and there's no other way that it could ever work otherwise. Yep. You have to really, and it's obedience. That. It's just where I'm meant to be. Yeah. It wasn't the easiest place to stand, but uh, that's where I'm, where I've been asked to. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. And I'm glad we finally got our schedules to line up. And um, I want to do it again real soon. Again, anytime you want to just go riff on about something, if it's like a little shorter than a cup than two hours, we can do that or we can go we can go for a couple hours again. So I, I, I really do appreciate you. And really quickly, where can people um, get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing? Yep. Twitter handles untapped growth. Website is untappedgrowth.com. Um, I'm currently working on getting a little farm and uh, initiative built out in Northeast Oklahoma, where we're going to have some regenerative agriculture and start building kind of sovereign small business networks in the community out there. So anybody wants to be a part of that, just hit me up. We've got a pretty solid team. The big thing we currently need is a couple bigger investors to come on board 
that understand the vision of what we're doing. Um, yeah, most easiest place to get in touch with me is typically Twitter. All right. Awesome, guys. Well, you heard it here. Untapped Growth, we really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we will talk soon. Thanks for having me.